You're tuning in to the TV Campfire with Caitlin McFarland and Emily Gibson, co-founders and co-executive directors of ATX Television Festival, aka TV Camp for Grownups. This episode is part of our series of special releases recorded live at ATX Season 7. To hear our original The TV Campfire series, please scroll down to Episodes 1 through 5. Hi y'all, welcome back to The TV Campfire. Today's episode is our fourth of six panels from this year's The Syndication Project track at ATX, and it's been on our minds a lot recently. As you may have guessed from the title, Stories Without Walls, the focus of this one is on immigration, more specifically how immigrants, their families, and their stories are represented on TV. It's a really big topic that is impossible to boil down to a single story. It is also impossible to discuss this topic in terms of TV and pop culture without also addressing how these stories intersect with the real-life issues happening at the border right now. It sounds serious and heavy, we know. And it is. There's a lot to take in. And as you'll hear in the conversation, there's still a really long way to go. But these panelists will have you energized by the end. They're just so full of hope. And all three showrunners, Mauricio Moda, Gloria Calderon-Kellett, and Tanya Siracho, represent this rising deafening tide of voices that are inclusive. They're Latinx creators that are committed to centering minority voices in their own shows and partnering with organizations like the ACLU to help others do the same. They're all fairly spectacular human beings. We may not so secretly want to be all of their best friends all of the time. Uh, And in fact, shortly after this panel, Tanya and Gloria, who are the showrunners of Vita and One Day at a Time, respectively, they are, started an initiative called One Vita at a Time to challenge their writers' rooms and crews to raise funds for Racist Texas, which is a foundation that's working locally to reunite and provide legal services for immigrant families that have been separated or detained at the border and with whom the ACLU also works very closely with. And the challenge issued by those two writers' rooms has now grown to 90 rooms and counting. It's it's so mind-boggling. It's because two women refuse to let the conversation end with just this panel or to only be happening between the two of them. These two made a difference and have now affected 90 different, basically, companies. (laughs) And that's exactly the kind of advocacy through storytelling that is at the heart of the syndication project and the work that so many organizations like the ACLU, who we partnered with for this conversation, are doing. So to our incredible panelists and moderator, Lorella Praley, Director of Immigration Policy and Campaigns at ACLU, thank you so much for having this conversation at ATX. We're listening, we're watching, and we're standing with you. If you'd like to learn more about RACIS, One Vita at a Time, or The Syndication Project, check out our show notes for details on how to get involved or donate. And be sure to support the shows like One Day at a Time, which is now on Netflix, Vita, which is on the Stars app or any Stars streaming sites, and Isla's High is on Hulu. So here it is, Stories Without Walls, presented with the ACLU. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our wonderful panelists. I'm going to start with Gloria Calderon Kellett. Gloria is the executive producer, showrunner, and director for One Day at a Time. Thanks for being with us today. Tania Saracho, showrunner and creator of Vida. Yeah. I think sometimes people sit where their names are, sometimes they don't. So it's, it's all good in the family. 
and Mauricio Mota, executive producer of Islos High. Excellent. Right here, right here. Don't put me all the way out here. I know. Okay, how's everyone doing? All right. So it's such an honor uh, to be here with you today, to be in the great city of Austin, Texas, and to share in this space. My name is Lorela Praeli. I am the director of immigration policy and campaigns at the ACLU. And I just, I'm coming out of a week of being in Brownsville, Texas. Any of you yes. from Brownsville? Well, McAllen. Um, McAllen. <laughs> I, I spent some time in McAllen going to the federal court where immigrants are being prosecuted en masse and are being separated from their kids. And so... For me, this conversation today couldn't be happening at a more important time because what is happening in our country, the cry for help from children and from their parents just has me wondering what else can I do and how is it that we reach the broader American public if they're not seeing the news? if they're consuming something else. And so for me, this is a personal issue. I grew up undocumented in the United States and I was just sharing with our panelists here that I never saw a story that told my story. In fact, all I saw was undocumented immigrants engaged in crime uh, and not really, it, it never represented the hard work I saw my mom doing day in and day, day out or how hard I worked at school, um, or really the stories of anyone who was around me. And so, you know, kudos to you all for taking the time and digging deep and for representing our communities adequately. I mean, the power of our stories and the power to tell stories to create change is what this conversation is about. So um, I wanna make sure that we engage in conversation. We'll have about 30 minutes discussion up here. And then we'll open it up for questions. There's gonna be a mic right in the middle. Um, but I want this to be a learning experience for all of us, um, just to talk about your, the success that you've had and also the challenges you've had as you've sort of maneuvered and found the ways to create our stories um, and to show them up on the screen. So with that, I will start. Everyone ready? Yeah. All right. So I actually wanted to, um, start with a quote I read in a New York Times article. This is how it goes. If you had to guess how strongly a place supported Donald J. Trump in the election, would you rather know how popular Duck Dynasty is there or how George W. Bush did there in 2000? Raise your hand if you think G.W. Bush. So if you had to guess how strongly a place supported Donald Trump in the election, would you rather know how popular Duck Dynasty is there or how George W. Bush did there in 2000, right? So this was fascinating to me because after I worked in advocacy for Immigrant Youth Let Network, I went to the Hillary campaign. And so, so much of what you do in campaigns is looking at how people, who people voted for as predictors. And what this study finds is it actually turns out that the relationship with the TV show is stronger. That is how closely connected politics and culture can be. Right, so I just wanna let that sink in for a second. Now, I'm gonna get into my first question and preface that by sharing about a study conducted by MTV in 2014, which found that the typical white American lives in a town that is more than three quarters white, and the average white person's group of friends is more than 90% white. For white Americans who live in homogeneous communities, 
one of the chief ways they are exposed to immigrants, the same immigrants who are making America less and less white, is through pop culture. TV plays obviously a central role in that. So I wanted to ask if you can talk about how your shows where you dig into the issue of immigration, however that may be, and maybe you can share a little bit about that here, how that came to be made. Were there barriers to getting them accepted, to getting it done? How hard was it to stay away from stereotypes? Me? Let me go Let's it? do it. All right. Uh, well, I, was, I waited a very long time to write my family, and for that reason, because the times, I, we are thirsty for representation, we want it so bad. And every year when there would be the one Latino show they'd pick up, I'd go, oh, please be good, please be good, please be good. And then you'd watch it and you'd see like somebody got in there. Somebody got in there and gave notes and did something and didn't let them, whatever. And we can taste, we can see that and we can taste that. And then all other representations are maids or serial killers or gangbangers or, and you know, listen, some of that exists, but that story I think has been told. So for me, I always wanted to offer uh, an alternative. And I always said, like, if I could just invite these people over to my house for dinner and have a conversation for them, I, I really feel like the world would change. I think we could change hearts and minds if you sat at my table with my family and had dinner. So that's really what I wanted to do. And it wasn't until Norman Lear. It wasn't until this man who had already had a track record of having done this, who said he was going to allow me the power that I had never had before, to tell these stories in the way that I wanted to tell them, that I felt comfortable enough to put this family on television. So I really credit you know, um, him and the body of work that he has in his past. But before then, I, did, I was very afraid to do it because I didn't feel like there was no, there was no one to look to that said, oh, well, he, they did it, so I can do it. Norman had done that, so I felt like I was safe in his, in his warm and loving embrace. <laughs> um, Thank you. Well, that, you had a champion uh, that let you tell your story. I, I had to have a champion, too, because I had just gotten into Hollywood with a capital H three years before, and they handed me the show, which is, what? You know, like, that doesn't happen. But who handed me the show was an executive of stars named Marta Fernandez, and that matters because it's not just um, the development and, you know, the commission to do the show. It's the championing for two years because, you know, it takes a while for these shows to get made. So, like, the championing, it was the important uh, a part. And also the, I, I was a first-time showrunner. Um, I still feel like, you know, like I'm still at the beginning of that because we're about to, my, the season of my show is about to end on Sunday. Um, so, like, it feels like I'm about to finish that cycle, you know? Um, but... But she held my hand throughout the whole thing, you know? Uh, and, and then the biggest thing that, that stars could do was not tell me no. Like when I wanted to staff an all Latinx writer's room, um, all female department heads, um, um, I think maybe Jermaine is in here, uh, a compo Latina composer, Latina casting director, Latina cinematographer. We, uh, that had not been, well, especially like my cinematographer had never been tried. Like that kind of stuff, it, it matters when you have a champion in there. So I think that that, I don't know if that was the question we were answering, but yeah, it was like, it mattered. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but it, it mattered because then you were able to tell the story authentically. I don't like that word because that's like for Mexican food. Authentic Mexican food, you know. But <laughs> true to life, true to life. Yeah, true to life. That's better than, don't use authentic. Okay. Yeah, I think that, piggybacking a little bit on what Tanya just said. I think that for us with Islos High, we didn't have any champions because I think we, when we got 
with the, when Katie, who's my my wife now, but the, the whole person, the mastermind behind the whole thing, when she had the idea of doing the show, we sat with everybody in town, and everybody told us we shouldn't do the show. Everybody said that we shouldn't do the show, that the show was was it was not the right moment. And one of the I say that verbatim when one of a big agent said, this show can't be shouldn't be done because the market is not ready. The market is not ready for Latinos speaking in English and being protagonists. This was what's the name of that executive? Tanya, Tanya, Tanya. I'll tell you in the green room. Okay, good. But um but then but then and, and, and that was interesting because we were, you know, back then I had hair, I was this naive producer. <laughs> and then basically what we had to do and could Katie had to do that, she basically raised money through grants and donations and season one we shot ourselves. 24 half hours ep episodes, which I, I don't know if I would do it again, but it was the only way for us to do it. And, and we did that in a way, and I, I love what, what Tanya just listed about uh, the, the way she built with Stars um, Vita, because we had to come with the same approach. Like we brought people that would never be traditionally hired as showrunners. We brought DP, uh, the, uh, our DP, it's so sad, there are only three female. African-American female DPs in the whole country, wow. which is ridiculous when I heard about that. And one of them, it came to his side. So I think for us, it was very interesting to see that Hollywood was designed to put us out. It was designed to expel us from the start. And I think that uh, it tells a lot about the conversation we're having here today, because I think that let young Latinos go to high school Right, it's they represent eighty percent of the high school population in California. It's a, I think eighty percent is a good number to respect for a population. Um, so I think that that's the, um, and I have to say this: uh, we were talking the back, uh, we we're talking about when Islos High finished at Hulu. If I was pitching Islos High today, today traditionally the show wouldn't get picked. Still, I have the conviction that the why, show why wouldn't is get that? picked. Because we still have a lot of rules. We have still a lot of dogmas about who the Latino audience is. Sometimes we're Hispanics. Sometimes we're Latino. We have so many. A lot of people get, like to define us. And I think that, but it's a good moment. I think that this panel proves that there is a lot. There's space for 10 more shows every mm -hmm. year. That I love that you brought about like, oh, the one Latino show every year. And I think that, and I think that to the point of the panel, I think that also speaks to the lack of platforms for our issues. Mm -hmm. And I think that the more shows would be able to have more of the issues, immigration being one of the most important ones. Thank you for that. I mean, I'm curious, I'm struck, this is not in my prep questions, but I'm so struck by this question about the market and when is the right time for the market. And so, I mean, we are everywhere, right? We're in urban, we're in cities, we're in rural. Um, we go to the movies on like any other constituency. One in four. Right? One in four are Latino that support films. So so then, so so can you break that down for us? What does that mean when we people say the market's not ready? We are 20% of this country or 18% of this country. I, I don't have the answer for you. Maybe you do. But why are we missing from the national narrative? Why is 20% of your population missing from the national narrative? That That's a question I have for them. Um, I know that they have an inter... Like, they, they're like, they, cosmetically, they're like, we should do some stories of this. But it's when people like really understand that there's worth to 18% of us, you know, I feel like they have to like, 
they have to realize that we spend money on because like like you said a quarter of um and they're mostly latinas right yes yeah where was the last latina led film you saw that you saw no and like we're 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 that and that's erasure for a people right that's like if if aliens came down and we're like all right let's see what this country is about it the narrative would be like all right so there's no latinos okay so like it would be like that you would notice it yeah you know? if it was through pop culture you're right if if if, if through the narrative that have yeah. been created by the media we are these things that, and and i feel like we have we've had to wait decades like we had mi familia we had selena we had and then we we're wait we're waiting for it like we're we're where are we? You know, and I don't know. I mean, I don't have the answer. I just have the complaint. You know, yeah, like, I, I have a, I have a, I have a, I don't know if it's, I think it's a theory mixed with like the meetings that I have with the players in the market. I think that philosophically, I think that the industry takes us for granted. I think it's definitely that it's in certain genres, it's one or every three. If you go to action, it's scary, the numbers of the box office. I think there is this thing about taking for granted. And I think that. I think that in the the zeitgeist of American culture, I think that we're I think in the Obama years maybe we're like third class citizens. I think now we're fifth class citizens. I think that I think the Latino vote, the Latino audience, the Latino dollar is still taken for granted. And I think that it's uh there's there needs to be if if you go to like representation in Congress, you cry if you go through representation of Congress, right? Because it should match, at least be close to. But I think that there is a symbolism that, and I think Hollywood helps that a lot. I think that Hollywood has a big responsibility on allowing that to happen. Yes. And cyclically, it is a problem because what happens is they'll do the one Latino show, right? Yeah. And they'll put it out there and it's not great. And then they'll go, well, we tried See, to do a Latino work. show. But it didn't work. People didn't like it. It's like, no, you went, you don't say that about all the white shows you make every year. And I've seen a lot of them. They're not good. <laughs> but you still give those people another show the next year. Oh, get me to ask. So it can't be that. It can't be that. And I think what is happening and I think what excites me is I think we're in a time where we are really demanding it. Mm -hmm. We are yeah. demanding a change and we are saying we want to be seen. And I think Twitter, it, Twitter can be used for a lot of terrible things, but it can also be used for positivity in saying we want to support that thing. Mm -hmm. And also in lifting one another up, I think that narrative also creates that there's only room for one of you at that table. Crabs in a bucket. That's, that's, and that yeah. can't not no, be what no. it is. Tanya's win is my win. Yeah. Her yeah. show does well. That's only good it's for me. It's about the really. tide. Yeah, the tide raising. Yes. So, yeah. so in the... So there's a, there's an active conversation about how the Latinx community is represented. And I want to, I want to dig into immigration a little bit. Um, you know, so I work in immigration policy and I was undocumented for 14 years before I was able to get my citizenship. And so I want to, I want to understand from you, how do you pick what to focus on? Right? So we have everything right now from the Muslim ban to family separation at the border, to the end of DACA, to the end of TPS, temporary protected status, to deportation and mass. I mean, you have so much coming from Washington that I'm curious about as you thought about your immigration, how you would address immigration in your shows, how it would become a part of the story for your characters. Where, how did you choose to focus? Like, where did you choose to focus within well, the whole world of immigration? 
So my charge from Stars was to create uh, an American show, meaning these are second, third generation girls. So that was because that story also hasn't been told that much. We we also have some like immigration narratives, the same immigration narratives from the 90s, like from left or from like Mi Familia, you know, like and that, that sort of thing. But like we they wanted an American show that, you know, steeped in Latinidad because, you know, it's in the um, east side of, of L.A. But like also to be like, we are Americans, too, you know. I'm not an American. I have a green card. Um, so I am my own. I was like, when you were asking, I'm my own immigrant story right now, trying to become a citizen, you know? Um, but we, so because our show was so like the charge was to create this American show, um, the sisters are, you know, and then their mom was like an American pocha, you know, she was not, and that was needed to be story. So then the way I populated the, because in my writer's room, uh, a couple of, um, uh, one of my uh, writers, her her wife um, was just undocumented and they got married so that she could say, you know, like they, they like, it's very real for us in the writer's room, like this subject, like, especially last year when we were watching everything that was happening, it, you know, we all showed up at the airport, you know, like, because it, 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 it mattered. Um, but then I, I've, um, the way I populated the, the, um, uh, the background and, and other like the secondary uh, uh, actors like I have um, Josimar Reyes and Julio Salgado as, in background and their artwork in it. So like I have DACA recipients who are in who I'm hiring and are in the world, you know, um, so that and, and then, you know, um, it's it's like we uh, people's backstories are that because my show had to be so American by it, like as a charge. But like there's a lot of immigrants writing that show and um and we wanted to like sort of populate it that way you know with with um Yossi and and have Julio Salgado I don't know if you know this artivist work um it's like seminal like um daca work too like uh, and queer too so that's that matters in our show too because we're queer steeped in queerness we had a really interesting journey in our immigration story because Norman Lear came in and said I want Lydia, so our family's a Cuban-American family, for those of you that don't know the show, uh, loosely based on my family. And he said, oh, what if Lydia gets deported? And I said, well, Lydia can't be deported because she's Cuban. And he said, what? <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, there's different rules for different people. And, you know, I grew up in Oregon and then San Diego, and I knew so many, I grew up with so many Mexicans in San Diego who, by virtue of the fact that their grandparents landed there instead of Cuba, the rules were different for them. And so as somebody who has been the recipient and benefited from my parents having a very clear path to citizenship, my parents were able to get social security cards and get citizenship and get home loans and get student loans to send me to college. I am the product of what can happen when this country does it right. So, so it does not, it doesn't sit well with me that because of a, a boat journey in the 1800s, uh, I get, th I'm the recipient of that. And these other people are not, it doesn't sit well with me. So we said, well, we can't do that story, but a lot of people maybe don't know that. So we decided to plant a character early on Carmen, the Carmen character played by the amazing Ariel Barrer. And we planted her. We're like, let's get to know this woman, this young woman and love her and then see her go through this and see how this family deals with this and helps her. And so that's how we came upon our, our episode five of season one strays about uh, her parents being deported. I love how Americanized she was because you, you know, like we have again that immigrant narrative that we're like, 
con el morral, and then we like swim over the river, you know, and it's like, which we do, but also like this girl was emo and like goth and like, and you're like, wait, like it sort of shifted your notion of Americanness, you know, I really love how you all did that. Tanya. <laughs> Yeah, in, in our case, we a, a little bit of the background of the storyline. So for us, we are doing a high school drama that takes place in East LA in a fictional high school, all Latino high school. And I think, and for us, for every show that we do, but it's I had a lot of, we had an advisory board of 30 plus organizations, city, state, federal level. So from the beginning, we're working with like United with Dream and the ACLU uh, Dream I always forget the name, but we talked about it at the green room, at the green room. But we work with a lot of organizations that were day to day working around the 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 issue of immigration. I think for us, we're obsessed with always when we bring an issue to a show, it's all about the systemic approach, yeah. right? Because I think it's very tempting for a producer to be like, "Let's do what's very sexy, sexy, or very soapy, or very dramatic." Okay, you can have that part, but how do you make the systemic view of that. So we had a character called Eddie who was undocumented and we designed a whole journey for him from season two to season five. And we went through the whole process of what it means to be undocumented, what it means to be undocumented and go to a dance competition. And then he had a fake ID and what it means to, if you want healthcare, because his mother who was considered illegal, she had to go back to Mexico to get healthcare. So we went through all this very complex journeys and um it was and it was fascinating to see the reaction of the fans like because we we're also reading all that all the time in what real was time the reaction from the fans? it was very interesting because you could uh, like we had kids that were undocumented relieved to see like oh wow finally i'm seeing myself finally i'm seeing the struggle of my family and there was a very great story for us because california endowment who was an advisory board since the beginning asked us for help about, because there was a, of course, only in California, there was a whole law that would give healthcare to undocumented youth. And we created a whole web series around it because we couldn't put in the show as they wanted. Of course, if we could, we'd give the whole real estate, we could, but we're just like, let's see, let's just mention on the show, but let's do a whole web series about that. And it was amazing because they, we broke records of kids that were applying for for healthcare through, because they saw the cast of Islos High and they were in character. So it was Eddie worried about getting sick and all that. So I think it's for us, the it was very interesting to create the intention, have the advisory board, but read the how the fans were reacting. And of course we had the trolls and I, when the trolls are coming after you, it means you're doing something right. <laughs> yeah, but it's true when you see, because I think it, for us, like when we are, because we did abortion in the show, we had a whole thing. When we had readers of the blaze threatening to kill us, or like deportation advocates saying that you guys are the devil, we were like, yes, because it showed that we hit a nerve. So I like that. I've never used deportation advocates. I'm gonna run with that <clears throat> after here. Uh, <laughs> It's just because they're sh they're recording this. I have much worse words for them, <laughs> but I just needed I like to that be. Though. I really like that. Um, <laughs> they say we're pro-immigrant advocates, and we usually say nativist or anti-immigrant. But I really like deportation. Um, I'm gonna. I was gonna I'm say gonna, white supremacist, <laughs> but then. I'm gonna take that. I mean, but also there is so much. It is true that there are people who are haters. It's also true that people don't know, right? And yeah. so you're getting a ton of people around the country are getting their information from not from fake news, but they're fake news. 
right? You're getting, if you li- if you only hear Donald Trump, and I'll say this because I lived it through the campaign and we live it now, but if that's the only thing you're exposed to, if the only thing you listen to is Fox News, right, then you you really don't have a different picture of what it means to be undocumented in America. And, right, like I always think, people told me when I was growing up, well, why can't you just get in the back of the line? And I had to explain to people, there is no line. All of these, the 11 million people who are waiting for a path to legalization want there to be a line. And it's a 13-year line, yeah. right, if if it actually went through Congress. And so using the platforms that you have to highlight those stories and to break down all of these myths. And to humanize these people. You know, I think there's also like such a systemic problem in, like you said, the lies that are being fed. Because we hear that from the Hollywood side every year and I tweet about it voraciously because it makes me furious. Like, I mean, I would have gotten that TV writing job, but I'm not a Latina. It must be so great to be a Latina, Gloria. Oh, don't even get, uh, don't no. even get the, me started. The numbers Gloria, are not don't there. Number, Let's turn like off the, the camera. Numbers. Guys, scoreboard. <laughs> scoreboard. Like, literally, it's like, oh, you're oh, right, because there's like 50 Latino shows on TV. Oh, that's right. There's just like five. Like, it's just, it's Out of not. 520. And these are smart, liberal people. That every year, same with the actors, same with the, oh, well, they went diverse. Did they? Because I watched that show and it's all a bunch of white people. So I don't know that they did. You know, not to mention, look, not to mention, because I always got to give shout outs to our others. Our Asian American community is lost, is invisible on television. Totally. Native. Native Native are invisible. Disabled, invisible. These are real American people that that deserve also representation. So we sit there for them, too. Our work and our wins are their win, too, because we want to represent that. And it's just a lie. And I think people hear it and they believe it. And instead of taking a moment to say, oh, maybe I'm not writing good stuff. It's so much easier to say it's their fault. Mm-hmm. And we are in a culture of it's their fault. And it's yeah. not. It's not. Yeah. Be better. So I have a, Mauricio, I have a question for you. <clears throat> Mauricio reached out to United We Dream back when I was at the organization and, you know, reached out, wanted to do something on DACA, wanted to focus on dreamers. But from the very beginning, your approach with United We Dream was we want to give people something to do. Mm-hmm. So we don't just want them to be hopeless. We want them to feel like they watch the show and then they can take action, right? So that the show is going to generate a certain kind of emotion. Yeah. And then I want you to do something about it. And I have to tell you, I haven't seen a lot of t- television shows do that. Mm-hmm. Like they use the pl- the various platforms that they have to connect from what you see in the screen to the action that you can take, be it more information about how to get healthcare in California or how to get involved with United We Dream. So why isn't there more of that happening? Or is it is there a lot? I just don't see it. Um, and how did you make a decision that that's, you really wanted that to be core to what you, what you put on TV? That, that's a great question. And um, it's really hard. I think a lot of people don't do it because it's very complex, not because they don't want to do it. I think I know a lot of producers, showrunners that have the intention, have the will, but then the studio doesn't want to give the money or the marketing department says, like, this is not good for the show. It's, so there are a lot of reasons, but I think that for us, like I said, I think it's all about intentionality. For us, we're obsessed with, because we do that, right? Our, all of our shows and movies have a huge social impact layer because also that's our way to evaluate the quality of our show because we're calculating everything we, we measure everything but for us also is like i want to have, i don't want to do psas 
I don't want to do so. Okay, I call social product placement. And this week we're going to have the HIV episode. We we hate that. So I think for us, specifically with the the the, the DACA, the undocumented narrative was about okay, if we're going to be educating the audience, right? Because we're not preaching to the choir. We we had a like millions of people watching and talking about it. Blah blah blah. So how do and. That's a good thing about streaming too, because you have different people watching different moments of the day. So we also knew that we needed to get the tools for the conversation to, to continue. So I think for us, these partners, we're giving them free marketing. We're giving them, we're shooting extra content because we knew they needed that star power, but also they had the storyline to play with. And I think that, um, because it's not about even giving back, it makes our shows better. It makes, because it's about the immersion, right? And I think that we're in a transition now. I think that it's about the medium is evolving so much. And I think that fans want more. But the, the difference are like, some, sometimes they, they want more stuff from Black Panther, yes. But they also want more stuff from Dreamers, from DACA. And we're just giving that, creating these rabbit holes through the show so you can go deep into the issue and download an app. Or we did a whole thing. It was, we we're very um, happy with the, the impact. There is a... I have a cheat sheet here because I, the name is so there was a we we help there was a what's the name of the there was a, there was an app that we helped integrate on the show that it's a, an, a it's an app that basically Eddie can press on his phone if ICE is coming after him and the app existed and it was crazy to see the reaction of people like they had no idea it was funny it was funny to see white people surprised it existed and shocked people needed to have an app to say, wow, ICE is coming, and basically you press the button, then your whole family knows where you are and locates you and all that. So I think that it's, uh, for us, that's the only way to do that because we, it's all about giving that next level of, because it, it, then it's just awareness. I think awareness is great, but the moment we live in right now, you need to give people, because I think people are, are, are the couch activists, right? Which is like, wow, I like this. What else can you do, right? Yes, um, that's that's incredible. Um, maybe it was Notifica, but I'm not sure if that was, if that's Notifica, the app. That's the um, but the fact that the that people who were not directly impacted were shocked that that needed to exist just goes to, sh and that people who needed it had a resource after they watched it is incredible because you see two worlds coming together in a way. Uh, so I want to make sure that we pivot to questions. Um, we'll close and ask you all if there's anything you would leave the folks in the room with. Um, but I really want to open it up. There's a mic in the middle. If you could say your name, ask your question, have a conversation with us. Welcome. Just come right up to the front. Like Oprah or someone else. <laughs> or what was Hello. It? Hello. My name Hi. is Amy. I'm from Dallas, Texas. Hi, Amy. <laughs> so my question is basically not about as showrunners, but as influencers. Um, we have a gentleman running here in Texas for the U.S. Senate who has a great quote that Texas isn't a red state or a blue state, it's a non-voting state. I believe we're like 47th in the nation for voter turnout. So as influencers in tw Twitter, all of social media, what do you do to get people to get out and vote and advocate and do the, you know, because I believe in one person, one vote is very important. And like this election coming up is the most important in a long time. You probably already have your scripts written. So you can't really necessarily, you know, inject it into your first couple of episodes. So are you doing something with your voice 
to get people activated. We actually did do an episode in season two about voting and about citizenship, which led to Lydia's citizenship, because we have a young advocate on the show. Uh, Elena Alvarez is like a big political advocate. But we also all, I think, use our platforms. I mean, I definitely, we had a huge race in, in Los Angeles this week that was a big deal in California. Mm -hmm. And so we, we try to let people know the importance of voting and making sure that their vote, that they vote, that they take the time to vote. But it's really, it's also about educating. I think there's still, it's privilege, right? You, you don't vote because you're like, eh. Well, it's, it's apathy. Yeah. You're or like, my vote, everything's fine My for voice me, doesn't but you need count. To, or some of us can't vote. Yeah. Yes. But so, those that can vote should vote for those that can't vote. So one right. day no, those that can't right. vote can vote. We just had vote. an election and I was we, like, y'all better vote yes, on social media. And we all, vote for yes. me. Yeah. I and our vote. voter turnout was still embarrassing in Los mm -hmm. Angeles. Yeah, it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. So it is, it is a problem. It's something that we need to empower people and, and make them understand the importance of their vote. Yeah, Thank you very much. And go Beto and I'll... I'll take your answer sitting down. I, I wanted to, th that's a great question. I think that um, in, in, in the case of Islos High, because of the, again, intentionality, 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 Voto Latino was part of our advisory board since season one. And because of Eddie, we basically had, and then we, of course, because it's drama, we had a Voto, a, a Voto Latino activist who was his love interest and he was a love triangle because it can't be just like, hey, Latinos vote. You have to, right, do it well. <laughs> and I think that it was very powerful because we created a lot of storylines with Voto Latino. And, uh, and that was, I, I, I love that you said the fact that like, yeah, the scripts are written and many times they're all shot. So we had, we, for all the shows that we do, we have a second unit just for, for, to do what we call transmedia content. So every season of Islos High, we would have a research team reading what was happening in Congress, or, and you have different states voting different things. So for example, I think season three, um, we had, I think, Ohio or Iowa voting something terrible against transgender youth. And we had the cast shoot like short videos about, hey, Iowa, there is this proposition being voted next week. And then we were just building this network. And of course, spreading through the advisory board because for them it's like gold. So I think that it's a, uh, it's a, uh, because I think that one, one thing that actually I talked to Norman like I think two years ago, I think we have this crazy idea that there is media and civic media. Every media is civic. We have a huge responsibility. And I think that voting, for example, there's something big happening right now that we, we, we're gonna start doing about the census. The census is, the citizenship question is 10% of what's happening. It's much worse what's going to happen and has a huge impact in voting. So I think that we, you have to skin the cat in different ways. It's us as influencers, but it's also like, oh, wow, what can the cast do on their free time? And some of our actors became like uh, uh, spokespeople for Voto Latino naturally because you're just sort of the storylines. And then suddenly it's a lot of different ways that we can do that as an industry because voting is... It's key because I think we, we have this notion that the vote doesn't count, right? That you, you mentioned so well. Hi there. Uh, name's Scooter. Not that that's important. Um, <laughs> but I just, I kind of think back and it was actually um, Dave Chappelle was telling a story about, you know, one of the, one of the most impactful moments in the civil rights movement was when uh, Emmett Till's mother said, you know, they're going to keep his body on display and not hide it from the world with that, that, that viciousness, right? And that was a, a moment that took the country aback 
And you know, one of my very best friends is a professor at, at ASU, and I was sharing a story with one of your colleagues in the back. And you know, he went down with one of his uh, professors down to the border in Arizona, and they went and just simply were trying to provide water. And you know, he would tell the stories about people were going around like bashing the water supply, and to to you know make sure these people stayed dehydrated and starved, and that's just like vicious. So as as writers and, and knowing what you your first question posed was, you know, do you display that type of viciousness to overcome not just the apathy, but, you know, that vicious behavior to, to make people notice? And, you know, is that part of your charge? Is that something that you're mindful of? And is that something that Emmett Till moment for the Latinx community that maybe is needed on screen or wherever to to overcome some of the demonization that we're that we're experiencing right now. I think that those people who are kicking who are doing those things because they don't think that us crossing the border are human. Yeah. Right? So our job is to humanize us and that's what you were saying, like to to invite to your living room and to your kitchen um, and to say we're human like you. And for so long the narrative um, I'm speaking for Latinx. We've been the invisible people, right? The ones cleaning, uh, cleaning your houses and 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 um, you know taking care of your kids and and doing your lawns. But we've always known that we've. It's so much more than that, you know. But that's been the narrative. But it's like it's a matter of shifting that because um, the uh, when you change, when you change culture, meaning media. Um, Perception is changed, and then policy is changed, and that um, you can track the um, um, the queer community, LGBTQ community through like when Ellen came out eight years later, a piece of legislation came out, like you, L, yeah, everything. So but we just haven't had those markers, you know. We need those markers. Some are like Emma Till's mother showing his body, and they're gonna have to be other things too, you know. Um, I, I'm very concerned with Latinx queers, obviously, because you know, in the show that that queer. Brown queerness is like not beyond like cerrale izquierda, you know, like we're not even we haven't mattered. Then got things like pose and um are coming out. Um, but it's about humanity. It's about like adding flesh to the bones because we for so long we just been whatever versions of you know not fully fleshed human beings. And, and that's why things like that's why we there's an uproar when our president says animals to describe these people because those words are important. And that is, you can go back to Nazi Germany, you can go back to Stalin, I mean, you, all of that is how they do it. Um, and so it's it's humanizing, it's making sure that people understand who we are and that we are human beings who love our kids and want the best for them, et cetera. And I think also what I love so much about this panel is that the, these are three shows that happened in Los Angeles, that take place in Los Angeles, that couldn't be more different. And it speaks to how representation, even in the same city, can be so vastly different. The storytelling, the style. So obviously, I'm doing a multi-camera sitcom, so I can't, that is out of style for what I'm doing. But the way that I can embrace it and the way that I can show it is by the humanization. Yeah, and I think that um, it's it's because I think it's the humanizing part that we're talking about. It's about normalizing. It's a, it's always that balance. I think that. We're so far from normalizing, so because we need to humanize first. But I think that in our case, because it was a, 
a teen drama, and now we're redeveloping the show and we're gonna go even more grittier, but we had one example that we did was uh, of the hard thing that you mentioned. So there is a taqueria on the show, which is one of the most important hubs of the show. Everybody, all the kids go, the, the father of, of the hot guy is there. <laughs> so of course, guys, come on. But, um, but then what happens is that on season three, we are let, you already are feeling in the air, right? I think that our job as writers and producers, I always say that you need to read culture to make culture, right? We live in a bubble in Hollywood, so we need to be humble and reading what's happening. We felt Trump was coming, and then we're just like, wow. We came to the writers and we're like, guys, we need to, yeah, we need to sign four Latinos in a the panel. They need to let us know about what, what's happening with the time. <laughs> but, um, but what happened, so, so then we created this guy, this Trump-like guy, and this guy comes and goes to a Charlie Rose kind of show. It was before Charlie Rose. <laughs> but, but uh, so, and then this guy starts seeing these terrible things, just like I think Gloria mentioned, uh, the, the, or, or Tanya, the animal thing. And then what happens the next day is that this group of white kids go at night and destroy the taqueria and graf put graffiti all over the walls and like wetbacks and cucarachas and destroy the taqueria, destroy the life. This the taqueria has been owned by the family for 50 years. And um, so it was very interesting for us to talk to the partners and that was happening. That's, that was already happening. The news media was just not covering that enough, but we needed to do that. The same way we needed to do Eddie being caught with a fake ID and have the owner, the, the president of the dance competition, humiliate him and say, you don't belong to this country. We had to do that. We had to do a, a fake, a, like a mockumentary about his mother being afraid of being picked by ice because we needed to people to feel what if their mothers were crying and being afraid of being taken and being on the detention center. We, one of the hardest moments in East Los High was when we shot inside a detention center. It's probably one of the worst experiences. Like, it's really tough. What, what's happening in detention centers, the New York Times is talking 5% of what's really happening. But we had to show what happens. When a undocumented youth is picked and brought to a detention center, we needed to show what was happening. We need to show what happens. We spent a whole season showing the PTSD that Eddie goes through with nightmares and rashes coming because that was, and that was so important. United the Dream was giving us, we're sitting with kids, interviewing kids and all that. And I think that, like Gloria said, every show has a different way of doing it. There's no right or wrong. I think that many times the lightness of her show has a better way into a certain kind of audience because I think that it's always a balance, right? Because I think that I, I grew up in the middle of a dictatorship in Brazil. I saw the end of the dictatorship in Brazil. I saw the left wing do a great job and then destroy the country and now the right wing coming back. I always say that we, I, I always say that fiction has a very important power of like tattooing in our brains what's happening. The amount of like, transgender death that is happening all over the world after Trump won. You, guys, it's happening because it's the president of the United States saying things and it's validating. All the guys are coming out of the rocks all over the world. In Brazil, you have kids, transgender kids being killed like 300% more. It's not a coincidence. It's because there's this validation. There's this guy validating all that. So we have to push back sometimes 
in a more positive way sometimes. It's, I think the narrative, because you also can preach, right? You need to be very careful to not be like, preach. So it's, it's always find, finding that balance. Thank you. We have two more questions. Scooter. <laughs> Thanks, Scooter. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm Ivy. I'm Asian-y. Um, which is, you know, I'm not Asian. I'm just Asian-y. <laughs> like in the face, I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty Texan. And um, I think part of the immigrant experience is that we, we were growing up, I only knew about like three jobs. And so now I'm, now, now I'm older and I, uh, I'm older than I look and I, and I, and I know about all these other cool jobs, like the ones that you guys have. And I, um, want to be one of these, you know, people in, in television and movies. And I, I think I have action packed, funny stories like to tell, but it just seems when you talk about the process and, you know, the marketing department and these executive producers and these people who have to hire you and, and all, and talking to these big networks. And it just feels like this insurmountable, like Nintendo levels of fancy white people that I would have to get through. And I am so discouraged that I feel like- the best of Hollywood <laughs> So it is, right? It sounds like it, so it actually is Absolutely that way. Is. Yeah. And so I feel like, ah, you know, like podcasting or even improv comedy or all of the, or even, you know, open mic poetry is just so much more accessible. What do you want to do? Um, I, I would love to write action movies. Okay. Uh, well, it starts with movement. level one of the video game, <laughs> and you're writing a movie. Yeah. Right. You know yes, what I mean? I yeah. That's um, because I, they, um, I, I don't actually don't know how you got into it, but I was just writing plays, little plays that 40 people would see, small, less people in this room, you know, on a stage like this. And then my voice started developing my voice until someone found one of those plays and they were like, do you want to write for television? I mean, it really did happen like that for me. I mean, after 15 years, but um, <laughs> but that doesn't have to. But I wasn't searching for it. But what I'm saying is, you start by writing. If you you just said you want to enter this video game by writing, then you should write that first screenplay. She you know? said something brilliant, as she often does, which is you have to start at level one. If you're looking at that, there's yes, but you've got to go. Okay, what are the steps to that? I get. I guess I. Um, because it, when you look at that big thing, you know, and I'm like, I have to start at level one somewhere. It seems like these more accessible kinds of media for storytelling are so much more surmountable. And so then like, then I'm like, well, I should take my step one here instead of there. But and I deselect then, myself. Sorry, what do you say? Um, then they won't like, if you really, the aim is to write a movie. If you're doing a podcast and, and someone was like, oh, this person has a voice. Or if you do a web, a web series, well, show us your writing. You have to be ready to be like, this is what I, this is my voice. Okay. This is who I am. So that screenplay is so important. Even if you have catch, because the, the thing is you have to catch fire, right? Somebody has okay. to notice you because it's so, yeah. man, the landscape is like so noisy right now, but you catch fire and then you're ready. So it's okay to start in some of these more w wherever, accessible. But then you, okay. You Start have a wherever. voice. Yeah. 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 Okay. I think that I think that you're gonna say something. Thanks. Like? I, mean, I have lots to say, but I want you to talk too. Yeah. I think that. Look. I think that my. I think that there is the boss level. I'm gonna use this metaphor so much now. I love that you brought the Nintendo metaphor, but <laughs> I think that there is. I agree with both Gloria and Tanya. Like everything is level one. I think that. But I think that there is a great. We are. The, we are going through a renaissance in storytelling. 
but you need to do the work. It's that's the reality because you're gonna you're gonna run into someone or here, and you need to be ready. You need to have samples. You need to have so there's nothing that beats hard work. I think Picasso used to say, right? I, so interesting. The more I work, the more lucky I get. You need to do the work, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I think that you're 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 answering your own question. Like, yeah, you there are just all these low entry places to go that you can use your voice and all that, but also you need to build your community. You need to build your audience. She started with 40 people because that's where you're, you're also training your eye. Like there is a guy that I really admire. It's a, a guy called Eric Heistra, who is a brilliant guy. He wrote Arrival, and, uh, which for me is one of the, the best sci-fi movie ever made. Eric wrote 70, I think 75 or 65 scripts. He only made eight. Till he got the Oscar nomination, he did so much. And this is a white guy. And <laughs> so, and again, I'm, I'm just, just because you're, you brought, we're talking about that here. We need to talk. We're talking about immigration, about the immigration experience. But like, it's, it's really is about you building your body of work. It's about you finding the voice, finding the angle. Because I think that we are, we are the hungry ones. That gives us an ability to see what people are not seeing in our communities. Find those stories and then keep building the, your portfolio. It's, it is about that. And I, I learned that like selling board games door to door into slums in Brazil, you always have the no. The, the no is always there. Go and ask, no, no, and then one day, but the no always comes with feedback. Like, no, this is starting out so good, in, in, improve it. How many, like, rejection letters? Oh. My mother is a writer. She has 50 rejection letters. He keep, she kept, she keeps. She only. She yeah, keeps. Only 50. She keeps all of them because she, of course, she's a Latina matriarch. And then you're like, hey, motherfucker, I made it. So, <laughs> but it's, a, she learned with all of them. She learned through those letters. So and I, I think would say, I would also, like, I think what everyone's saying is you can't just write one script, right? No. You got to write and 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 read and read and read and have people read your stuff and then give you feedback and then rewrite, 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 rewrite. It is no, this life is nonstop, never ending, constantly rewriting, cute. hustle, 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 hustle. That's for everybody. Mm -hmm. So it's fascinating to me because I, sta I was meeting to staff on a second television show that didn't get picked up by CBS with a Latina lead. Anyway. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, they what? didn't pick it up. Yeah, no, they loved it. They told me how brilliant it was and then they didn't pick it up. Uh, but... <laughs> It, I, I met writers, and I had met writers three years before that I liked, but they weren't quite ready yet, and I reached out to their agents. These are all writers of color, okay? I reached out to their agents, and I said, I'm staffing another show. I'd love to meet with them, but again, send me their new samples. Almost all of them had the same sample from th three years before. Uh -uh. all the time. No, you know, I can't do that. I can't help you. Okay, so I am going to use you. moderator's privilege. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. We have five. Write a lot. Write a lot. We have write a lot, read, rewrite, consult. <laughs> Hustle. Um, we have five minutes left, so I'm going to ask the two ladies um, if you could both ask your questions, and then if you could take 30 seconds yes. to answer the questions, that would be great. <laughs> this is hard with this crew. So hard. So I'll try to talk really fast. Um, hi, my name is Gabby, and um, I just want to thank you. You talked about earlier how you brown queerness is basically invisible in media, and I just want to thank, I watch both Vila and One Day at a Time, and I want to thank both of you for what you've done. I'm actually doing my senior project next semester um, on the character of Elena Alvarez and intersectionality and just analyzing that. Um, so I just wanted to ask, like, what has your experience been being able to give a voice to both of these very underrepresented communities? 
Okay, hold on one second. We're gonna get the thank you. We're gonna get the other question at her. <laughs> What a disciplined moderator. I love it. No, you, you will not forget because you write, you hustle, you rewrite, you consult. Yes. Mine is more sociological, perhaps. So I'm American, maybe kind of considered white. Shoot. Um, so I don't understand how the white American demographic that you've been talking about, how can people be so, like you said, oblivious to other cultures in this day and age? And two, why are this, if that's the case, why do the studio heads pander to them still? I mean, I understand there's a market from like the 50s, but the civic media. Can I just get that real quick? Privilege. It's white privilege, and it's still the same white privilege. There, we answered it. <laughs> no, but it's it's that. It hasn't right, changed. So we have, has we it? have we have two questions. 30 seconds each. 30 seconds. Nice. Uh, uh, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Not only to uh, pr present uh, queerness, but also to present veteran issues, which are very lost. Our veterans, they come back and we forget them completely. These are people that have gone off to fight for our freedom that deserve our acknowledgement and, and our stories to be told. Not also from the lens of hero or or person living on the street, but normal American person living a life. So, and... Uh, and uh, let's see, queerness, veteran issues, Latinidad. Uh, uh, it's Ten amazing. Ten seconds. <laughs> Done. Thank you. He has, a, he has the hardest time with 30 seconds. Yes. That's that's okay. seconds Tell me, you go. It's super fulfilling because it's because um, of what you just said that you're going to do. Like, you know, like you're, yeah, sorry. Es que no tengo mis lentes. Because of people like you and because I'm, I'm, I'm reading as some people are presenting here um, and you're probably here because of, you know, the like that is super fulfilling to be, to be like, I've never seen myself. I'm a masculine of center butch, a brown butch. I've never seen myself. That is amazing to be able to, to, you know, to hear, especially from Twitter, to be like, I've never seen myself. Um, that's really fulfilling. Yeah, I think that... Um... Quick. I, I, I'm clowning here. I'm clowning here. I think that the, what happens to the, I think I, I agree with Tanya about privilege, but I think that executives are just lazy. They're lazy and they lazy don't travel. They don't, they live, they live in a bubble because privilege creates, right? And I think that, and I think there's also the fact that what's the quote that like for many people, for some people, uh, equality sounds like oppression. I think that it's, it's what's happening in the country right now, this demographic anxiety, it's, it's bullshit. It's about sharing the power, so. 30 seconds, I swear to God. Uh, I would also say in terms of, I think if I'm being generous in my heart about the goodness of people, I think it also does not occur to people. This is also a question of privilege. It does not occur to people. The amount of people, the amount of white men I have worked with on this show who are like, oh my God, now that I've done this, my eyes are opened to not only the experience, because our, fem our we have so many women on our show too. They had no idea the, the struggles of women in writer's rooms, never. We tell them the stories of our writers' rooms and they're like, what? So it's all of those things. I think that if we give people the benefit of the doubt, if we get there and sit down and say, here is my story, this is what I've experienced, their minds are blown and they wanna then do right and do something right by it, which is why I think this change is happening. I think it hasn't occurred to people and people haven't asked. Mm -hmm. And so now they're asking and so we're trying to have a conversation so that we can make change and we're seeing so many allies and people that are supporting that. Thank you. And I think the one thing I would add to that is you all in the room, when you are in the room, you also can't be afraid, right? You can't be afraid that it'll get rejected. You sort of have to push through um, because it's all of those pieces. It's maybe they don't know, they haven't asked, but also there's a lot of fear. 
right? And so you think, well, maybe I'm the brown person walking into this room and I'm gonna be the brown person pitching the brown story. But actually that's why many of us are in the rooms that we occupy. And while we're sitting in that room, it is on us to raise those issues and those stories. And if you're not a person of color, if you're not directly impacted, if you don't come from an immigrant background, then you have, I think, even a bigger responsibility to be ultra aware, right? And to be opening the space for that story to take place. So there's a lot, if folks are, if you're sticking around, that's great. We went through a 30 second rule. Everyone rocked it. I wanna give a few shout outs. Uh, I wanna, um, I want to thank you all for the work that you're doing. Uh, you know, I, I just, I wish that when I was in high, when I was in high school that I had had these stories and they just did, they didn't exist. Right. And so I was undocumented and I felt like, gosh, is there anyone else who's going through this and the power, like your ability to reach people who are directly impacted, but also your ability to share with people who are not and to shape the way that they're viewing the world and understanding the issue and the coverage is incredible. So thank you for changing the world. Um, thank you for being champions. And I think that maybe there are a lot of people in this room who will be looking to you and the success and the path that you've laid, right? <laughs> like you're building the bench. No you're, pressure. You're, you're, building, you're, you're building the bench and we need more people to build the bench for others in the room. I want to also just share that the ACLU of Texas is here in this conference, the festival. Make sure you stop by, get some cool swag. Um, Marsha is also here. Can you stand up for a quick second? Um, Marsha works for the ACLU. She consults with shows and she's part of Storyline Partners along with the Fine American, MPAC, and other organizations. So if you want to know, if you need more resources, she's here for you. She can give you a business card and make sure you get plugged in. Thank you all. And she's for a your, badass. I just spent two she's days with her badass. in LA, and she's a badass. Thank you all for being here. Thanks for showing Thank up. Thanks, Thanks for, plugging for coming. In. Thank you for joining us around the TV campfire. Stay tuned each Thursday for live releases from the festival, in addition to bonus content and exclusive interviews and new original series coming soon. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at ATX Festival and let us know what you think using our official hashtag, hashtag the TV Campfire. Please rate and subscribe to the TV Campfire on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season 8 of ATX Festival will be June 6th through 9th, 2018. And for more information on attending, please visit www.atxfestival.com. <laughs>